Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis, today. It's a Brother, Brother podcast. Today, in honor of the royal wedding, we're talking about rock royalty. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk royalty. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we're talking about rock royalty. In honor of the royal wedding, we dedicate this episode to the royals. The king, Elvis Presley. King Tuff, King Cruel. Joe King Carrasco, King Coffee, Aretha Franklin. Queens of the Stone Age, Queen. Queen Latifah, Prince, Prince Buster. Bonnie Prince Billy, the Royal Trucks. Royal Blood, Duke Ellington, Dukes of the Stratosphere. Duke of Earl, whatever that means. And, well, you know, you get the picture. I just realized, Christian, uh, giving my intro there, uh, there's a decided lack of princesses in the music world. Anyway. There certainly <laughs> is. The closest, I, uh, the closest I could come up with is like Mario-themed music for Princess Peach, but I guess she doesn't really count as a musician. Um, I can't even think of that many. And yeah, uh, no, that's pretty much it. I'm surprised there aren't more from the 80s. I am too. Uh, I'm surprised there aren't, you know, and, and frankly... I think we've got. I think we found ourselves a void in the uh, in the band name landscape. Um, but anyway, I wanted to kick off. Actually, we were going to kick off this episode with a bit of music news. It was kind of a packed week, and and um, I think we're just going to uh, start um, these days uh, talking a little bit more about uh, things that are going on currently. So, uh, you had an interesting. Uh, you sent me some interesting articles this week about um, some pretty forward-thinking, futuristic stuff. Hit it. Yes, we'll call it technology. Um, But uh, yeah, no, I I was interested to see that. um, So apparently recently a a new sort of uh, composition um, machine learning program has come out. And actually we are about to get in August um, our first uh, our first artificial intelligence um, composed and produced album. Um, which I think, you know, will will sort of be a, a in, in the greater scheme of things, you know, a pretty significant moment when you think about um, the influence that that humans have always had over, uh, you know, or o- over yeah, exactly over over on the actual uh, over the composition itself, um, and and I think uh, this is called you know it's it's a uh, called Amper, um, and I guess the the distinction you know this isn't the first time that like music or machine learning I guess has sort of been involved in music um, and. Uh, but but I think like the the actual sort of removal of the of the human element entirely. So basically, just describing in terms of like um, you know the genre or the mood that you want or um, the activity that you are scoring, uh, like you know driving to a sunset or um, you know uh, a selling anti first <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those things. Um, yeah, uh, and now now I'm just thinking of uh, that song. Venus by Bananarama that was in that fucking commercial for like by 10 years. Shocking blue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, but yeah, but, no, I, I, I wonder if like, you just hit on and it, it, it comes out with man machine by craft work or something. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, what, what kind of agency that people need to have over something in order to, you know, claim a composition credit or, um, does this stuff just sort of exist, uh, you know, out there in the, in the ether sort of un, um, uh, un- unlicensed effectively to, to any individual, or as I suspect, are the, 
are the fine people over at Amper um, going, going to claim composition credits for every single piece of music that this thing creates? I, you'd have to, I would think. But, I mean, that does put a lot of... Uh composers and musicians um you know i mean we've we've talked a lot about how um you know with declining album sales that licensing is is the way to you know make money if you're a musician these days and and this really you know should be frightening i would think to any working musician um and it also it also begs a, a sort of more fundamental question i think about the the nature of creativity and and that sort of spark that um you know that inspires people to uh to to come up with um you know new formulations in the world of music because you know i i guess it, it, at the end of the day um any kind of machine learning as far as i understand it and look I, you know i don't think either of us claim uh, to be experts here but you know, you remember like uh, when you saw Watson, the IBM thing on on Jeopardy back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was basically absorbing the sum total of human knowledge and churning out answers based on you know. Um, yeah, it wasn't creating it, something that hadn't been done before. It was answering questions. Well, that that's right, and um, you know, it was getting smarter as 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 time progressed, which was which was a really interesting sort of new f- feature. It wasn't just sort of googling the answer or whatever. Um, but in this case, you know, I wonder. Uh, it, it's possible for um, you know for machine learning to sort of rearrange um, you know existing music to churn out like a, a new um, a new piece of art that that sort of uh, basically statistically um, you know solves a specific problem uh, whether that problem is you know the type of music that people in the West like listen to um, for uh, for a specific type of, of activity. Um, but I guess my question is, you know, does true innovation, and I think it's relevant to, to bring this up in, in light of, um, you know, some of the, the bigger named obituaries this week, including people like Glenn Branca, um, you know, I don't think any machine learning is going to replicate anything he did anytime soon. Um, you know, it, it was so off the wall and it was so out of step with it. With, no, with we, may the, have, we, we might have the first uh, computer suicide if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's uh, that's a, a cruising for, for a short circuiting anyway. So, you know, I just I think this is something it's interesting. It'll be worth keeping an eye on. And, and Absolutely. I think there's there's plenty of space for it to develop, of, of course. And, you know, I think we should uh, we should probably try and get somebody um on the pod at some point to, to sort of talk about what, what the implications are. Bob Maz, we're looking at you. Anyway, um, the, another uh, interesting uh, development this week is that Spotify announced it will no longer promote R. Kelly. Um, did, to me, this was, uh, you know, this was an interesting maneuver, but it seemed like a sort of a half measure um, because it's, you know, they're going to stop promoting R. Kelly. I don't know what that means. They're not going to take him off of the service or... It means or, they're going to stop putting him on playlists. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know, that, that raises two equally sort of, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, contrary questions, which is, you know, is this a slippery slope to start sanctioning artists? Um, and, you know, if you're going to go so far as to stop promoting him, why not just clip them all together i mean what's uh you know what, because does, he gets a ton of plays yeah <laughs> and they have shareholders now um, yeah no i mean that, that okay well they're that they're, that's the end of that question but i mean you know are, 
are they, you know, R. Kelly is an extreme case. Obviously, um, his behavior is well documented, although he's never seemed to have been purely in the sense of 21st century human slavery. Sure. No, I mean, you know, I mean, he's a well documented, you know, sort of uh, predatory uh, creature. But um, are, you know, I mean, is. At what point do we start sanctioning people because we don't like? I mean, and so take Kanye West this past week, who's made some very unpopular uh, comments. Do, 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 does he start getting buried? Does you know do? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think the the um, not to be too simplistic about the answer is, but uh, about the answer, but but no, um, he, he does not. Uh, I, I think you're you're absolutely right to to bring up the slippery slope, though, which is to say, you know, guilty until or excuse me, innocent until proven guilty has sort of been inverted here. He hasn't been convicted of anything. Um, but I think it's it's definitely consistent with a uh, with a broader trend that we're seeing in corporate America right now, in which, you know, we are, I think, as a result of the most recent election cycle, or at least in tandem with the most recent election cycle, you're seeing a lot of companies come out and make um, sort of moralistic or ethical judgments about, you know, uh, the demographic that they want to align with. And I think that um, uh, uh, an optimist or... I mean, like a, Novartis or AT&T. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, but I think that, you know, th- there, there are two ways of looking at that. Um, one is, of course, that uh, they are swept up in these sort of culture wars or, or you know, debates as much as any average citizen is. Um, Another much more cynical and, and probably my own interpretation would be this this stuff is focus group to death. Um, yeah. And they recognize that, you know, the majority of their consumers fall into a certain demographic. And I'll be honest with you, like, uh, probably a lot of the, you know, if, if you look at the way that, um, uh, you know, I, I think that, that many of Spotify's users and, and listeners would... Um, you know, would, would break on the subject of, of R. Kelly, uh, they are probably uh, fairly critical. Um, well, even I, but, even so, but, there's a split, and, you know, that's why I think they found a sort of happy medium here as opposed well, to wiping them out altogether. I mean, I guess the last thing I'll say on it, which is, you know, sort of a, a follow-up to what you just said, which is that, you know, I mean, people can vote with their feet, or in this case, vote with their ears, and, you know, frankly, you can absolutely... Uh, quantify the number of people who aren't doing that, and uh, you know, R. Kelly's still very popular. So um, there you go. I guess we will we'll never we won't settle this one during this particular conversation. No, we'll have to bring him on the podcast. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned that uh, passing of of Glenn Branca. There's you know a, a handful of significant uh, passings this week, which is a shame. Um, uh, Scott Hutchinson, um, a frightened rabbit. Uh, I look past too soon, too young, 36 years old, and um, really, uh, you know, sort of a tragic um, tale and, and one that uh, sounds like, given the coverage, uh, was um, sadly uh, and tragically anticipated a little bit. He had struggled a lot with uh, mental illness, and um, sounds like the people in his family and his bandmates uh, were were very concerned, concerned to the point where the second that he didn't show up, they assumed the worst, uh, tweeting out that uh, they would like some help in, in finding him. And unfortunately, uh, the worst case scenario applied. But um, Frightened Rabbit, a band that um, 
kind of sneakily got big. Um, you know, I don't know what your take on Frightened Rabbit was, but, you know, very um, earnest, uh, emotional, uh, very, uh, um, you know, uh, sincere band that people seem to really like and, and people uh, on a personal level seem to like him an awful lot. No, I think that's right. I mean, the, the consensus has, has really been, and I, I've been, I've been interested actually to, um, you know, how, how many sort of, uh, friends and, you know, critics among them, but, but sort of more broadly in the, in the critical world, sort of how much he connected and how much his lyrics really connected with people. Um, and I, I think, you know, their second album, which was sort of truly beloved, I think it was, you know, that came out in 2007, um, was, uh, I was just a was really a sort of um, a, a quiet sensation, um, and they, you know, definitely had a um, a, a more publicly um, large and sort of enthusiastic following in, in the UK. I think in their native UK, um, but uh, but definitely um, he will be uh, he will be regrettably you know missed as a a songwriter and and you know it was interesting it was it was exciting to see where that band was going next so um it's too bad that's a shame and then on the less tragic front given uh his age but um you know one that really hit hard for me was uh today the passing of tom wolf who you know i would say without reservation is is uh my favorite writer and um someone whose career I was always fascinated by and always impressed with. You know, I, I always say in music, um, it's really difficult to uh, age as anything other than a venerable country musician like, you know, Johnny Cash or Waylon Jennings or Merle Haggard. And I think Tom Wolfe um, was that guy, too. He was never not cool, and, and he was never not cool by being not really that cool. Really fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of a... Sort of a, a genteel a feet southerner um with you know an incredibly uh like you know sort of um adventurous vocabulary and uh, a hazardous wit and weird hats and and really like funny double-breasted white suits well that was the, i mean his you know the story behind that was that he had a white suit and you know he was told that he couldn't wear his white suit um, you know, before uh, or after Labor Day, and he only had one suit, so he wore it after Labor Day, and then he made it his signature. Yeah, um, no, you know, he's, like, he's fuck you, I'll wear the white suit. Really, sort of a, a progen- I mean, I think a progenitor in the you know of the sort of new form of mixed journalist novelist, um, just sort of all around uh, an incredible mm-hmm. writer who could throw himself at any subject. Um, when the fiction and journalism was intentional. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, well, and you know, to to set him apart, I think from somebody like Hunter S. Thompson, who, while he fictionalized a lot of his journalism, really sort of you know kept uh, you know kept himself within that sort of the, the space of journalism. There was just, just there wasn't the same amount or fluidity of crossover. Whereas you know he could just as easily write a nonfiction book as to turn around and write a great novel. Um, and, Hunter know, Thompson think, was the attraction. In Tom Wolfe's case, his writing was the attraction. Yes, and well, I think he made so, this, you know, society around him really the the attraction um, through his writing. I mean, he was such a shrewd uh, observer of of you know the strangeness in very sort of typical 
um, like commonplace behaviors. And he was able to sort of make you feel completely alien in your own world, in your own element, and in your own sort of social strata, um, which is really, really pretty incredible, I think. Um, and also what the world needs currently, I think, yeah. more than anything. And, no, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I think you know we've we've had another we've had an author on this podcast who I think really followed in in the footsteps in terms of his sort of you know his ability to diversify his own interests and writing styles and sort of research different subjects and um, and and you know I, so he he's definitely his that his, of course being Jeff Dyer sorry yes um, his his legacy is is huge uh, so I'm yeah he will I be am. missed by me. And a lot of other folks. So anyway, that's uh, you want to take a quick break and we'll come back and, and uh, talk about something slightly less solemn. Royalty. Amongst you all, you tired human beings He's got all the things a cripple has Not to working arms and legs And vital parts fall from his system And dissolve in Scottish rain Vitally, he doesn't miss him He's too fucked up to care Is that you in front of me? Coming back for even more to tell you the same. Well, you must be a masochist. Oh, I'm on his last leg. On his last leg. On his last leg. Alright, welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today it's a Brother, Brother podcast with just Christian and myself. Um, There's been a lot of uh, talk about royalty uh, this week leading into the royal Has wedding there? of Harry and Meghan. Sorry, I haven't, I haven't seen that on uh, every single network um, in, in the United States. They're not nonstop coverage of this shit for the last six months. By the way, is, is there a less, sounding, a less regal sounding couple than Harry and Meghan? <laughs> I mean, it Hank and Megan. Yeah, it doesn't really, uh, you know, Kurt and Courtney. Um, but uh, yeah, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, it just dovetailed nicely because there's a lot of royalty in the rock news lately, and and uh, by that I mean uh, there's a fantastic new Elvis documentary, The King, um, called The uh, Searcher on HBO. So it's called Elvis Presley, The Searcher, and. Um, the first Bohemian Rhapsody trailer was released today with Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury, and uh, it looks pretty good, actually. And then, um, you know, there is the news that the Prince trove of, um, you know, uh, the endless um, recordings that he made over the course of his career are going to be uh, winnowed down, and, and uh, an album's going to be released next year. They all That came on the heels of the release of Prince's demo of Nothing Compares to You, which has gotten a lot of hits and a lot of attention. So um, I'm actually going to start off by talking about the Elvis documentary. I don't know if you finished it. I know you saw part one. Did you wind up seeing part two? No, I actually couldn't bring myself to part two because part one was so bad. I mean, it was just, it was uh, kind of boring. Um, and I, I think that you managed to plow through and said that it was a, a really dramatic 
um, sort of 180 uh, about halfway through. I found, for, for my part, you know, the history, like Elvis's early history is interesting. Um, it basically one extended sort of uh, uh, reflection on, on the extent to which he was guilty of cultural appropriation. Um, but, like, uh, you know, it, it really, it, it was just slow. Um, and, and, you know, I think the, the part where it gets sort of interesting is, is really his, um, after he, the wave is sort of crested, or maybe when it's at the top, um, and, you know, how all of a sudden uh, some of his sort of eccentricities and insecurities started to, you know, come Manifest. to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would beg to differ. I actually thought the first half was interesting. I thought the second half was really um, you know, took me by surprise. I, I find that a lot of times in, you know, uh, long form music documentaries, I tend because I've just been such a fanatic for so long that I tend to know a lot of the stuff. And uh, in this case, you know, it was always uh, difficult for me because of uh, my age. And so I actually intersected. Elvis died when I was seven or eight years old. And uh, I wasn't that keen on Elvis as a kid, but, um, you know, I'm fascinated by his story. And also, you know, there's all this iconography around Elvis. There's, you know, skinny, handsome Elvis and military Elvis and Hawaii Elvis. And he's like the G.I. Joe action figure for yeah. 40 years of American history. You know? Yeah. Um, is stretch Mark Armstrong. Um, <laughs> but you know, he, you know, there was all this like, you know, I mean, but it, you know, to me it was like, okay, well all this happened between, 58 and 77 and I can't really put a you know I can't get a feel for the chronology because you know he did have um you know anyway there's a lot of confusing symbolism it all happened when I was young and and therefore didn't wasn't able to put the puzzle pieces together and this really helped me put the puzzle pieces together but the second half of the documentary really you know goes through his um career and and it, it came you know I came to realize just how stymied his career was by, uh, I guess you could say by his own fame, but it really was his management. I mean, Colonel Tom Parker made Elvis. Fucker, wasn't he? Yeah. Really I mean, that's sort of like a the nasty piece of work. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'd always known, you know, sort of, but not known the specifics of it. And really what it was is I think Colonel Tom Parker, um, really prevented Elvis from ever being an artist or, um, you know, I mean, as the album, you know, as the British Invasion hits, uh, the album as an art form hits, Colonel Tom Parker's just milking every penny he can out of Elvis, which means putting him in more movies, making him put out singles that, um, you know, that aren't, you know, very challenging and are really, you know, as his audience aged, um, his work aged with them. He didn't, he didn't do anything contemporary then. And, 1968, um, he gets a chance. He's uh, really feeling adrift in the world. He gets a chance to do this network special, very widely known as the Elvis Comeback Special. Uh, he gets in shape. He, um, you know, the lights go on, the cameras go on. He tries to beg out of it uh, right before the show starts. I mean, literally a live network television special. He tries to walk before well, to, to set the stage for this. It was real. I mean, he sort of fallen out of fashion in a way that like he himself was, was very insecure as he I doubted his it. own abilities. Yeah. And, you know, literally they said the lights, you know, the lights and the camera went on and nothing. And there was a, 
if you were working on it, what would have been an extremely pronounced silence. And then the band started up and he locked in and gave one of the great performances of his life. He then really put out the only album he ever put out, uh, which again wasn't really regarded as an album per se, but basically working with different producers, different songwriters. This is when Suspicious Minds came out, um, you know, Burn in Love, um, some of his more... Uh, current sounding, for lack of a, a better term, but some of his more modern sounding, um, you know, and best singles. And then uh, as soon as he, he sort of caught into the new producer that sort of challenged him to do different things, Colonel Tom Parker put the brakes on it and took him back well, to uh, sign him up for a residency in Vegas where he got fat and disinterested and, um, you know, really well, it's just um, sort of like shortened his life. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt a little bit like an animal at the zoo, um, you know, and that's that's sort of always been the uncomfortable, like sad end of his career. Um, and, you know, many people love him anyway uh, and love him in that era anyway. And obviously pack the house every night. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it's interesting to compare the two different, or I guess, you know, really to, to contrast the two different stories um, of, uh, I mean, contemporaries in, in the Beatles and, and Elvis. Um, obviously, the Beatles came around a little bit later, but, you know, you look at somebody like Sir George Martin, who obviously wasn't a manager, but but was a producer, um, much as uh, Colonel Tom Parker was for, for a lot of the early records um, that Elvis put out, and, you know, somebody who really fostered their creativity. Actually, um, it was, I, sorry, I just don't mean to correct you, but, um, you know, it was Sam Phillips who was the producer. Colonel Tom was was a was non musical and oh, never. No, I, I know. Anything. I was I was very surprised to see that he wrote himself into the production uh, credits and royalties um, mm. for publishing half of publishing on everything. Well, half of publishing, but also had himself as a listed producer for yeah. a lot of Elvis's early records, um, which is which was a, a one of the sort of trinkets that this documentary uncovered. Well, me. one of the I mean the thing that was shocking to me, and, and you know this is probably more common knowledge, but I, I feel like I have a pretty good base of knowledge in, in popular music, and and I had no idea who Colonel Tom Parker was. Um, the individual. I mean, I knew who he was, the presence and the manager of Elvis, but I had no idea that he was a Dutch. Uh, convict uh, um, on the run from the law who made it to America, borrowed someone else's identity, joined the army, never achieved the rank of colonel, and claimed to be born and raised in West Virginia, um, which is a complete lie. He was uh, Dutch-born, was involved in a criminal act, I believe potentially a murder, and he escaped uh, the country and never went back. And the reason that Elvis never toured the world as a musician, and he never did, he never toured Europe or Asia or anywhere, was because Colonel, Colonel Tom Parker didn't, didn't have a passport. Yeah. Um, and he kept telling him that he wasn't going to play well in foreign countries and that, you know, he his fans were here. Nobody cared about him anywhere else. And it's a, it's a really interesting story of manipulation. Sad. Sad. Yeah, sad. Anyway, well, I guess we can move on from that. But I do, I recommend it very highly. I know you were bored by the first half of it, but I, I really do think um, it's, I, I found it fascinating and I find, um, you I know, think- almost criminally sad in the, in the way that this guy could have been um, a much 
more vital um, modern artist than he was. Anyway, speaking of dynamic performers, <laughs> um, the uh, the new trailer for Bohemian Rhapsody came out. This very troubled. Um, Freddie Mercury Queen biopic that's been in the works for many, many years was originally going to star Sasha Baron Cohen and be directed by X because number of people. Because that guy looks exactly like Freddie Mercury. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's and, the most uh, obvious, like, yeah, casting choice in the world, so they had to find somebody else who has, like, equally sunken eyes. And that person is Rami Malek, and it, uh, the directorship uh, switched hands. Brian Singer was involved for a while. There were more people involved early on. But I have to say, I looked at the trailer today, and you know, hopefully they don't get too crazy with the story. But A, it looks great. And B, I realize I know nothing about Freddie Mercury aside from the fact that he was born in Tanzania. And you know, really, what, like I know his stage presence, but nothing else about him. How about you? No, I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, they're sort of the two, um, I, I think, like, routinely cited, you know, uh, pieces of information of, of, about, like, sort of personal information about the members of Queen, or, um, you know, one that you have a PhD in the band, uh, obviously earned subsequent to being in Queen, but nevertheless. Um, in astrophysics, no in less. In astrophysics, yes, not just your routine PhD. But, yeah. But in addition to that, the, the fact that Freddie Mercury is their manager turned um, lead singer. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, I mean, he was, he's a legendary frontman, often cited as the greatest frontman of all time. Amazing singing voice. I mean, you hear these, uh, now you get to hear these tracks where they isolate his vocals and it's just phenomenal. Um, you know, it, back in the you know, 70s, People didn't know what to make of him. I mean, he was a heartthrob for everybody, you know, men, women, everything. But, you know, this is a different time, and, and Freddie Mercury didn't even come out, much less, well, you know. Let me ask you, I mean, was the was the choice to keep his private life private pretty deliberate at that point? I, You know what, that's what I'm saying, is that, you know, I have learned a little bit more about Freddie Mercury, but there was um, always a shroud of secrecy, and, you know, part of it is the lack of... Um, you know, um, sources or lack of outlets to, to find out more about this. But you could keep yourself, you could well, keep you your secret read a secret. Book about Queen, but, no, I um, could have. Um, but I, you know, I mean, I know that he, um, you know, I, I know more about his later days than I do his early years. And I don't, yeah, I mean, for the, for the, you know, for a band that was that big, um, you know, that, that sort of, you know, is in the same, uh, conversation is you know bands like the Who and and um, you know the Stones almost not quite but um, you tend to know more about their members just by default. Yeah, they're um, hard to than escape. You ever I mean, did. it's hard to escape Led Zeppelin similarly, and Led Zeppelin's you know um, one of their biggest sort of uh, Tools. features were or yeah, I mean aspects of their personality as a band was their sort of secrecy. I mean mythology, um, yeah. But no, it's it's true that there's uh, there's not quite the same, not quite the same sort of lore um, surrounding Queen and and um, and yes, I do think a lot of it was keeping his private life private. Um, I think that um, you know even ten years later it would have been a is he or isn't he kind of thing. But even but in the seventies it wasn't even that. It was just he's Freddie Mercury, um, and that's as much as you got was the public. Um, stage version of of this person, but you know, I mean, he must have been a fascinating person. I, 
and and for those of us who are younger, I'm st- like I'm sure they're with me or still trying to square like to to truly sort of wrap my head around how the '70s like was at once you know a, a, a time when people were still fairly conservative and closeted about homosexuality, and at the same time, like one of the most obviously um, yeah. <laughs> like ostentatiously uh, you know. And, and sort of comfortably gay cultures, like, at any point in history. So I, yeah, I, sort of, I, I find it difficult to reconcile those two things sometimes. So maybe this will shed some light on that. No, it, it, maybe it will. It's, it, it, you'll, never, you'll never understand. You can't ever go back and, and sort of put yourself in the, in the frame of mind that uh, existed back then. Well, uh, you, you too can, much information. You just, but if you're going to, you have to start by strapping on roller skates. Yeah, and oiling up, but it really, like it, it, it was, it was just a different time when people, uh, when it just less was known about people, and and people were able to maintain a private life. Um, this is, of course, I'm talking about the pre-Twitter era, um, but it, it'll be interesting to see how it's handled. But uh, you know, like I said, in mo- in a lot of a lot of cases, I mean, such as like draw the you know draw the line, um, I mean walk the line, and um, you know even. Movies like uh, Grand Theft Parsons and, you know, movies where I know a lot about the people um, that are the subjects, uh, Sid and Nancy even, um, there isn't a whole lot of mystery. I, I can't believe that there's still this much mystery around Freddie Mercury, at least in my case. Well, and then there's the fact that it is just a difficult genre, you know, um, to, yes. to, cast, uh, to cast Hollywood stars and, um, you know, as stand-ins for other major celebrities. Well, um, this is always going to be a challenge, you know, and I'm looking at you, Val Kilmer. But even like, you know, even Ray, or so, for instance, I mean, where the, where the, where the uh, you know, performance was fantastic, um, uh, or Ali, uh, where the performance was decent. You know, it's like it's, sometimes you've seen so much, you've seen so much footage of Ali, um, and there's so many iconic moments that, Ali had outside the ring that you're really just compiling a greatest hits package of YouTube clips. And in this case, there is no greatest, there is no greatest hits package of YouTube clips that involve Freddie Mercury. So yeah. That's what's interesting to me. But so there's, a, you're going to get yes. the live aid performance. You're going to get, you know, the crazy black and white, uh, you know, maximum chest yeah. hair, uh, scoop neck unitard, um, outfit, but, and you're going to get the, the Bohemian Rhapsody video, but really, I mean, I, I I've barely ever seen Freddie Mercury speak um, on film. It's it's a very so I'm actually really interested in this movie. It's coming out massive in massive piano tile teeth. Yeah, <laughs> and a great player, great yes. player. Anyway, you want to take a quick break and we'll come back. Sure. Tonight I'm gonna have myself a real good time. I feel alive.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We are going to end this uh, Brother, Brother podcast where we end every Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. And that is, what are you listening to, Christian? And this is a, a question that stumps Christian every week. This week, it's not going to, as a matter of fact. Um, I, I have uh, something ready to go, and that is um, one of our former guests, um, The Bones of J.R. Jones, has released uh, his album, Ones to Keep Close, and is actually on tour as we speak um, on the West Coast. But uh, but this this new Wait album... I'm on the West Coast. Where is he? He's up in... Uh, he, well, he's actually between San Francisco and, and Washington right now, so... Um, so get driving. Uh, mm-hmm. but this is, a, I think a really, a, a great, um, a terrific album, um, that, that I think sort of expands his sound pretty, pretty dramatically, um, with, uh, working with a, a, a number of other musicians in the studio, um, and, and really sort of building out the, the rhythm section in particular, um, came together over the course of, uh, of about a year. Um, and, uh, and I think is a, a really sort of market step forward for him. So it's, it's pretty exciting to hear. Um, and actually is on tour right now. Uh, just saw him at the, the album release here in New York last week, uh, is on tour at the moment with a, with a full band. So if you get a oh, chance cool. to see him, definitely, uh, definitely do, definitely do. Yeah. So. I mean, this is John Lineberry who, you know, is a friend of the podcast and, um, a person who I actually saw his first live show ever, I believe. Um, but you know, who uh, up until now has been, um, performing as a one man act. And, uh, so I'm very interested to see him with a, with a full band. That'd be great. Um, I, on the other hand, have been watching a lot of television. Um, I started Patrick Melrose, which I was really looking forward to, based on the Edward St. Aubin novels. Um, it is about a aristocratic fuck-up, played by Benedict Cumberbatch in this case. It's a Showtime series, and the first one is out. Um, and I have to say, uh, it could be... Um, my own anticipation, my own build-up for it, but... Uh, uh, I got to see another one to make a, a decision, but I, I like it, but I have reservations. So I'm interested to see where it goes. There's a lot of uh, inner dialogue or inner monologue that, um, you know, sort of takes the form of voiceover, essentially, that I don't think is necessary and I find very distracting, particularly because I think Benedict Cumberbatch plays a fucked up aristocrat really, really well. <laughs> um, so I can't you know. imagine <laughs> how he's how? able to do so with so much yeah. authenticity. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, but um, so, you know, I, I'll give a, a wait and see on that one. I hope it, it um, rounds out, but it's a, it's a mini series and I don't know how many um, episodes it's going to be, but can, it, it, can I ask you a question? Is he a convincing junkie to you? Because I, I have to say, and I know you didn't watch uh, Sherlock, mm-hmm. but um, he, of course, Played one in that as well as you know, playing Sherlock Holmes. Um, I is, that part to me was a little weird uh, and and sort of never particularly convincing. Um, and I, I think part of it was also there's a sort of cartoonish character to to Sherlock Holmes, obviously. But um, I, I'm just curious what your take is. Like, how believable is this? How believable is it meant to be? It's. I mean, it's. You know, I mean, it's a memoir. It's uh, based on a true story. So obviously, it's meant to be convincing. And and um, so is I Narcos. Think, <laughs> uh, Narcos based on a true story. This was an actual memoir. Um, but it was no, based I, on, well, okay. But yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think he does a decent job in this. I mean, I'm I'm always looking, you know, for holes to punch in, in these things. And and one of them is that you know junkies look way too healthy. Um, 
in these, they look like, you know, they have, they have eye makeup that makes them look sallow, but frankly, they all look very buff and like they just got out of the gym um, and he's guilty of that, you know? Um, yeah, not weird and wizened like most of my, uh, contemporaries that went that route. But, um, anyway, no, I think he's, he's, you know, I think this is a good role for him. I think it's a really good role for him and I think he pursued it and I think he got it produced. So, um, you know, this is a labor of love. I just wish that they had made a couple of different choices that would have made it more enjoyable. And again, I'm going to give it some rope. Um, but, uh, I think, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, and then the other is a new Netflix true crime, uh, mini, uh, series or, or, um, limited, uh, called evil genius, which is about, uh, the pizza bomber, uh, who robbed a bank in Erie, Pennsylvania in 2005, I believe. Um, and it's a fucked up story and it's, it's a very, very, um, avidly watchable true crime piece that Netflix has done. And, um, you know, I think you and I both agree that making a murderer was not very enjoyable and too long and, and really meandering. I didn't follow it. I didn't really enjoy it, but I think they've done well with other true crime like the keepers and, um, you know, it seems to be the hot uh, genre at the moment, and Evil Genius does not disappoint. It's a fun, sh- it's a fun show to watch. Um, so check it out. And then, of course, how do we cap this? But with the, uh, are you going to add one to the ten, or the uh, eight million ten best songs of all time? Absolutely. Um, this week I'm going with a, a new song from Jim James. The uh, uh, frontman for My Morning Jacket, um, who is just dropped a single for his new album, um, which will come out later this summer, Just a Fool, which is uh, just like a ripping um, sort of 70s rock, you know, guitar lick and um, sort of uh, fun choral harmonies. So um, it's a, it's an excellent tune. I, I recommend you check it out. And um, I'm actually, uh, for one, sort of, you know, pretty eagerly anticipating his... Um, his solo release. Uh, the last cool. two have been, um, I guess, both cover albums from him. Um, so, you know, it's, it's ready for some new material. He does a great cover. I mean, he is a master of covering songs. Um, my addition to the 10 best songs of all time is Psychedelic Furs, Pretty in Pink, a uh, song you may think you're sick of, but is pretty goddamn great. And I also, the reason I added it is because I went down a wormhole uh, listen, looking at the lyrics, listening to the song, and learned something about it that I had never known before, which is that it was written by uh, two Swiss musicians um, who uh, Meyer and um, uh, Badoff, I believe this is the name, Meyer is one of the, uh, Dieter and Meyer, sorry, and um, they were the two guys in Yellow, the band that did Oh Yeah!, made most famous by um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So the guys in yellow were the ones that wrote Pretty in Pink. I had no idea that that was the case. Fascinating stuff. Stuff Stuff that exactly one person other than I other than myself is going to be interested in. But anyway. uh, No, I was just I was just like my my brain was an overdrive trying to think of Swiss musicians and all I could come up with was uh, Tina Turner and um, possibly Shania Twain. Swiss music. How how do they get? They both live in Switzerland. 
Oh, they both live in Switzerland. Yeah, but that's different. <laughs> um, well, no shit, yeah, but it's the closest I could do. I mean, yeah, how I many Swiss right. rock musicians can you come up with? Um, I think I took I, the only I, two good ones. So I think I'm racking my brain. I don't. I don't know that there is one. Um, God, yeah. So there you go, Roger Federer and <laughs> and the guys from Yellow. Anyway. Um, Good talking to you, and we'll be back As next always. week, and we're building towards our 100th. So uh, take care. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartorian and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.